You're listening to the Spoon Podcast. Spoon is a nonprofit that nourishes children who are highly vulnerable to malnutrition by empowering their caregivers around the globe. I'm your host, King. In today's episode, we talk to Cindy Kaplan, one of Spoon's co-founders, about her life journey, what Spoon means to her, the history of Spoon, how she was inspired to start a nonprofit, and where things are headed. Thank you so much for being on the show, Cindy. It is such a pleasure to have you. I have been so excited for this conversation. To start our conversation today, I'm hoping that we can take a trip down memory lane and talk more about your nutrition and entrepreneurship background. You started your own company in nutrition, I believe, in wellness. Could you talk a little bit more about that? So I am fortunate. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Both my parents are entrepreneurs. My husband's an entrepreneur. So that has come very naturally to me. And my first opportunity was back in my 20s when I was struggling with my own health. And I left my job at the time because I I couldn't keep up with the demands due to just not feeling well. And I had an opportunity to start a business with another woman doing corporate wellness consulting and helping companies to help their employees feel well. And that was a lot of fun. And through that, I got the opportunity to learn a little bit more about nutrition and the connection to overall wellness. And then we were really fortunate to be able to sell that company. And I continued along my journey by being the first hire at a natural foods company that was marketing and manufacturing allergen-free foods. And it was through that experience that I learned about their customer base and identified myself within it as someone who has celiac disease and got myself diagnosed and began to really understand how what I was eating was connected to how I was feeling and my overall health. Started reading a lot of labels because I had to and paying attention to not just what I couldn't have, but what I should be having and just learn to place a a much greater value on nutrition overall in my own life. With this background in entrepreneurship and being in the for-profit world, how did you end up getting to the point where you felt like there was a need to start a nonprofit with Spoon? I held that job for several years and got to be a part of growing a company and seeing how with just an idea, we could create a vision and realize that vision And a big part of that was understanding the needs of the consumer. And in this case, it was a health-based need. So really understanding more about how to fully comprehend the impact of a health issue on people's lives and how to meet that need. I was working with them. They were growing. The demand was growing. And at the same time, I was working to start our own family and we ended up building our family through adoption, through our son, Jaden, who was first to come to us. And I can share a little bit more about that because he is really what led me on the path to Spoon very solidly. But it was bringing him into our lives that really changed my focus and my priorities. I was not able to keep up with the demands of a job within a growing company and also take care of this little boy who was really failing to thrive. And so I pivoted pretty quickly my focus towards family. And once I was able to put back on a working hat, I knew that it had to be one that would address the need that now he had shown me. And that was 
naturally within the world of nonprofits and not for profit. Gotcha. So it was really the adoption of your son that inspired you to get into this field. Absolutely. That's inspiring to hear. And I'm really lucky I had the opportunity to work both within uh, an organization that I started and within other new young organizations so that by the time he introduced me to this probably greatest need I've ever had the opportunity to address, I had some semblance of what to do and where to start. I know you've talked about this problem at high level. What do you see as this issue that you started working on and that Spoon is now continuing to work on? It might be helpful if I paint a better picture of his story, because that's how I was introduced to this issue and this need. Okay. And then from there, uh, cast a broader light. Okay. So we met Jaden when he was six months old. He was living in an institution in Kazakhstan in Central Asia, and he was about 10 pounds at six months, which is really very small. Not only was he small, but he was developmentally quite delayed. And when we met him, he was being cared for by a series of different nannies. And we had the opportunity to watch how they cared for him before we had our turn. And it didn't take very long to realize why he was so underweight. And that was both what he was being fed and how he was being fed. He was receiving formula, although it was diluted, and he was drinking out of a bottle with a nipple hole that had been cut open. So the flow of the liquid to him was very, very, very fast. And he was a low tone baby, meaning it was difficult for him to have any kind of control over his muscles. And he was being fed pretty much laying down horizontally. So if you imagine as like a healthy adult with good tone, trying to lay on your back and drink very quickly liquid that's being poured down your mouth, you couldn't do it without coughing and choking. And that's what was happening. And that was what explained to us as well why he had had pneumonia twice before we met him at age six months. And then you can imagine when you get sick from something like pneumonia, you lose your appetite, you stop eating, you get sicker, and you get more malnourished. And so he was on this downward spiral that I quickly came to realize was not unique to him, but I saw how much it was impacting his health and his development. And that made me ask the question, what would happen if we weren't here to bring him home? And what of these tens of millions of kids like him who are starting their lives outside of families, living in institutional care, some living with foster families? Are they struggling in the same way? And how is it impacting their chance of ever getting a family or even having a life, a full life? I was just visualizing everything as you were speaking. And the moment that you said, as an adult, imagine laying on your back and trying to drink something quickly. My mind immediately went to an image of me choking and coughing and sputtering all over the place. And I can imagine how a kid would handle that. And And so it's not just that that's dangerous because it is. Kids can die and they do that way at these young vulnerable ages from choking, from aspiration-induced pneumonia. But it's also turns mealtime into something that is usually the most nurturing time for for infants, right? It's the time of connection with their caregiver too. Mm -hmm. From being something that is 
nourishing both in the sort of nutrition sense of the word as we think of it and also in the emotional and social development sense of the word and just feeling safe in the world to one of the scariest times for these kids. Honestly, that's where my story started. And then first thing I did was look around and see like, is this just me? Is it just my kid? I happened to know one other person who lived in my town of Portland, Oregon, where I was living at the time, who I knew was adopting from Kazakhstan. And that turned out to be who is now my co-founder, Michelle Radzinski and Boone's executive director. And I called her and I shared my story. And she had a different but similar enough story about her experience with her daughter and the impact of poor feeding and malnutrition on her daughter that we knew this probably isn't just a coincidence. And we started interviewing and surveying many more families and doing research and learned that this is indeed a huge need that's completely overlooked both by the countries where these kids are living and by the entire global health community. Why is it that you think that the problem was being ignored at that time? Or why was there not enough attention paid to this issue? I think it was a couple of things. One is global health is an enormous issue. Yeah, It's an enormous issue. And there are a lot of really amazing, both government run and NGO organizations addressing this issue. And generally you look at where most people are and how you can reach the, the greatest number of people. And then it's typically in the community and through community-based programming. And these kids who are living separate from their families and or kids with disabilities, which is also a category in which my son fits and mm-hmm. a lot of kids living in institutions have disabilities or even if they're not institutionalized, they are quite stigmatized and and tend to not be a part of community-based services. So all of these children aren't being reached. And I think some of that is inadvertent. It's how do these programs run? Families bring their children to community-based clinics. Well, if the child does not have a family or if the child is not very mobile or if there's a lot of stigma against a child like yours because of disability, this kid's not going to the clinic. Or maybe there are home-based programs with health workers who visit at homes. Well, once again, kids who are not living at homes, they're not going to be reached. And so I think that these organizations go for these approaches because that's how they're going to reach the most people with their efforts, but they are missing one of the most vulnerable, vulnerable groups this way. And it's not a tiny group. It's not a tiny group. At the time that Spoon started, there was no one else focusing on this problem and uh, in global health, such a big issue. This was a area that was not getting any attention at all. Absolutely. In fact, once I got Jaden settled at home, everything took so much work. Feeding him took so much work because he'd been trained to be scared of it. And he would not drink anything. He wouldn't drink any milky kind of liquid. So I was just trying to figure out how to get any calories in this kiddo. And once we got kind of over the hump, I started longing to do something other than just care for him, which I loved, but I needed something else Mm -hmm. too. And I started looking for volunteer opportunities. I didn't have any intention of starting a nonprofit at that time, but I I wanted to do something with my time that would address this issue. And Mm -hmm. I could not find any organizations that were addressing nutrition and feeding for children with disabilities and children living outside of family care. 
I could find a lot of organizations addressing childhood nutrition, and now there are even more of them, but they tend to rely on community-based approaches and we're not reaching these populations. I could also find people who are doing work within, for example, orphanage systems, but they weren't addressing nutrition and feeding and they tended not to address systemic issues. They tended to do things like build playgrounds or send mittens and things like this. And then there were organizations addressing kids with disabilities, but tended not to be as focused again on nutrition and feeding. So that intersection of this population and this need was not being addressed in a direct and meaningful way that we could find. You were looking for a volunteer opportunity, but since you didn't find anything, you decided to start your own nonprofit. That is very inspiring. See a problem. And if nothing exists, do something about it regardless. And like I said, I had the opportunity to have been raised by entrepreneurs, to have been married one, to have had success in those kinds of endeavors. And so I was trained to know that that's what you do. If there's no solution that exists, then you create one. But I will say that having a co-founder gave me a lot of the courage and inspiration as well to do that. I was certainly not out there on my own. And soon she and I were not out there on our own because we learned very quickly that there was a lot we didn't know to, to do this work and attracted an incredible group of volunteers to help us sort of pave the road, if you will. We were able to borrow from them everything we didn't know and their credibility and put together our first programming, which far exceeded our expectations as far as impact and paving the way for more opportunity for change. Wow, that is so interesting how it all came together for you and Spoon. Yeah. One thing that you were mentioning was this evidence-based approach. What were you expecting when you went in? What were you expecting to see? And what did you learn in your initial program? Well, I can tell you we were naive. <laughs> we thought, you know, maybe what we just need to do is to find a way to get good quality formula or vitamins overseas. And what this trio, if you will, helped us to quickly understand, first of all, we were making assumption about what was really needed. Then we were making an assumption about product actually being able to get there and not stuck in customs and then it going into the hands of the people who should have it and, and use it. And then making the assumption that this was sustainable. There's a lot of assumptions that could often and are often in international programming proven untrue. And they sort of led us to more of a model of, to use a cliche, teach a man to fish. First of all, if we were going to go into another country to try to address an issue, we couldn't go in with our perception of what the need was and how to solve the problem. We needed to partner with a local organization and offer our resources and help position them to see the need in the way that we saw it, or as far as put some urgency behind it, I should say, not necessarily see it how we saw it, but see the urgency. And they were to inform us just as much we them about what this need looks like and the context in which we were operating and to design a program together that they felt that they could then sustain over time. And that it was our job to go in as experts. And in that case, we were borrowing on the expertise of our board members and then others who they recruited in to help us. We had many other advisors and volunteers with extensive medical and public health backgrounds who came aboard. And we were to come in and to say, we see this as a problem. We value these children like you do. We want to lend this expertise 
And how can we work together to understand and solve this problem in a way that is sustainable? And in Kazakhstan, where we started, really the first biggest problem was there was no real evidence even of the need. I mean, we had our experience as adoptive parents, but nobody had ever done a study. And get this, not just in Kazakhstan, Mm -hmm. but anywhere in the world that was published on the nutritional status of kids living outside of family care. And very little was known too about the nutritional status of kids with disabilities, whether they be within institutions or living outside of institutions. And I state those as two separate groups, but the reality is, especially over time and the 12 years that we've been working, the majority of kids living in institutional care have some sort of disability. And in many reasons, that's why they're there. And in other cases, they've developed the disability by living there. And in some of those instances, we believe it's because they've been fed poorly and malnourished. So, and not intentionally, but that's just the nature of of what's happened there based on the practices now. You said there was no studies, there was no data about the kids, and there was no data about child nutrition in many different facets. So what was the original SPOON study? What was uncovered Yeah, so we looked at children living within family care, and then we looked at children living within institutional care and baby houses, which is the name for sort of what we think of as orphanages for young children in Kazakhstan. And we found that the rates of stunting, wasting, and anemia were considerably higher in many cases, over double that for children living in institutions versus children in the community. And the reason that this was so important is there was a perception by many, both there and in other countries, that children were better off in many cases in institutional care. And there's this problem of sort of over-institutionalizing, where kids who may have living parents or family who can care for them are given over to institutions thinking that they'll be better off there, particularly kids with disabilities. And this data was so important to highlight, that's not true. That's not true. These kids aren't growing and they're developing other nutritional deficiencies like anemia. And we know that young kids with anemia are so much more likely to have both problems with their physical health, their immune system fighting off other illnesses when they're anemic, but also problems with their cognitive development that last for their whole lives. For example, kids who might be anemic, iron deficient in their first few years of life, even when that is repaired later on, not that there isn't benefit to that, but even when it's repaired later on, we know that those kids are more likely to have problems in school, getting gainful employment, even with relationships down the road. There are a couple terms that you mentioned that maybe not all listeners are familiar with. You were talking about stunting, wasting, and even anemia. And you Mm -hmm. mentioned that this uh, concept of what we're institutionalizing. I was hoping that you could explain that for the listeners who may not be familiar. Yeah, absolutely. I hope I can do it justice. I've been well-trained by my colleagues, but (laughs) (laughs) I certainly don't claim to be a scientist. So stunting is a phenomenon that we tend to see as a result of chronic malnutrition. So malnutrition over time. It's what happens to us when we stop growing tall before we stop growing wide, Mm. if you will. Okay. So it's a relationship between your height and your age. 
And the interesting thing with stunting is Mm -hmm. you can see kids who look perfectly healthy and chubby and you think this kid is not malnourished, but then you learn this kid is quite a bit older than you thought they were. And the reason they look healthy is because they stop growing tall before they stop growing wide. So they may be gaining some weight, but it's distributed through a much smaller frame Mm -hmm. and therefore they are malnourished. It's just, it, it looks different than what we think of as being malnourished. Wasting is more of an indication of acute malnutrition. It's what we think of when we think of kids starving, right? Or people starving or wasting away. And it's the relationship between your weight and your height. So this is really, really skinny kids. And it has really acute implications for health. It can result in your organs failing and and all the things you sort of think of about really acute hunger. Mm-hmm. And anemia, there can be all sorts of different types of anemia, but the most common is iron deficiency anemia. And looking at your hemoglobin levels in the case of iron, first of all, it's fairly easy to test for relative to other nutrient deficiencies, which is why we were able to test for it. You can usually use just a finger prick kit. And that's something that we have equipped all our partners with. So rather than sending all these kids to a lab, for example, which is just not realistic or affordable for a lot of the sites where we work, something that you can kind of do on site pretty easily or in a mobile way. Okay. And it's, it's a pretty good indicator of other nutrient deficiencies. And it's sort of a wake up call that these kids are struggling in a way that's really going to impact their development for the short term and long term and nutrition needs to be addressed. And then you were talking about institutionalizing and over-institutionalizing? Institutionalization is sort of a broad term for putting people in not home-like settings, but rather in institutional-like settings. Okay. And it's an issue that we often have with children around the world who have been removed from or relinquished from family care. And there's a a lot of misunderstanding about these populations of kids. We often think of these institutions as orphanages, and there's a push to even move away from that language. Because when we think of an orphan, we think of a child who's lost his or her parents and probably doesn't have other family left to care for them. And what we've learned is that in many cases, the kids living in these orphanages or institutions half family, they just don't feel equipped and or have been given the message that they're not equipped to care for their kids. So the kids are ending up in these facilities because of a lack of resources, not necessarily a lack of will from the parent's side. Sometimes that is the case. Yes. And so Spoon is a part of a bigger movement now to address this issue. Because what we see is that, for example, kids with disabilities they're harder to care for at home. I know now I have one. Jaden has a disability. And while some of the early challenges we had were as a result of his neglect in an institutional setting, there were other issues that pertain to his disability that made it harder for us to care for him as parents. And it makes you second guess yourself. And if there was someone giving me the message, hey, listen, your kid would be much better off in an institution. I can see, I can see why it's easy to look at that and you want to do what's best for your kid, but it's not true. It's usually not the case. And I think also families put their kids in institutions for all sorts of reasons. But what we know from research is that kids 
who are raised in institutions for all sorts of reasons have lifelong impacts on their cognitive ability, their growth, their ability to form relationships, and all their outcomes later in life across the board. You were mentioning the Bucharest study. What is that? Is that a spoon study? It's not a spoon study. The Bucharest study predated spoon, but it went on quite beyond that. And it's a longitudinal study comparing all the different sort of quality of life and health and growth and developmental indicators of children who are being raised in family care versus children being raised outside of family care. And they followed kids who were in orphanages in Romania. And they followed kids who were adopted out of those orphanages and or living in foster care relative to kids who stayed and looked at lifelong impacts on, again, their growth, their cognitive ability, their social emotional development, their health, and found that across the board, kids being raised in institutional environments are just at a severe disadvantage. And that's the ones who sort of live long enough for you to compare them. When you say the ones that live long enough, is mortality also a variable? Is mortality also affected? Absolutely. And I can't speak specifically to that study. I'm not familiar enough with the data there, but we do know that death rates in institutional settings are quite high. And the heartbreaking part about it is in many countries, when these kids die, their deaths aren't being reported. Wow. And going back to what I said about Kazakhstan, this is a very hidden population and they're not counted in census data. Mm -hmm. Okay. They're not studied. Nobody knows exactly what's going on for these kids. Mm -hmm. And when they enter these institutions, they're lost. And when they die, it's oftentimes gone unnoticed. That's uh, a lot to process. It is. And that's why when people ask us, you know, what kind of organization are we, you know, are we a nutrition organization? Are we a child protection organization? It's like, yes, yes. And yes. And we're human rights organization, because even if Even if we couldn't show that what we do works to improve health outcomes for kids and ultimately is going to benefit, for example, the economy of a country because of that, Mm -hmm. even if, why do you do this? You have to do this for human rights. Every human deserves a chance to live and be treated with dignity. And that's just not what's happening for these kids. I think that every child deserves a chance to grow and beyond that, to thrive. Our vision at Spoon is a world where every child is valued and nourished. So it's about having a value placed on your life. And certainly about being able to realize some potential within your life. That's really important. And sadly, for kids with disabilities, I think we still have a ways to go in our own country. But there's a lot of stigma. There's a lot of misunderstanding about what kids are capable of, what kind of life they can be capable of having, what kind of inner life they can be capable of having, even when on the outside, they may not be verbal or they may not be mobile. We have video after video of children with disabilities being fed similarly to what I was describing with my son, but much older kids laying flat on their back and being fed this way. And if you watch their eyes when they're being fed, you can see the fear. There are feelings. And we have seen the most like incredible transformations and transformations in perception of these kids by caregivers. When, for example, we do the smallest thing, which is sitting them up, 
there's a story that comes to mind right away that my colleagues share. I wasn't able to be there to see it, but several years ago when we were working with in India, and one of the big things that we do at Spoon is train trainers, local people within the countries where we work to train caregivers on safe feeding practices. And so we had done that. And then we went into some of the institutions where these practices were now being implemented. And I don't remember the name of the little boy, but I believe he was four. And he'd been living in this institution for many years, lived in his crib. I mean, when I said lived in his crib, he did not come out to eat. He did not come out to play. And he was fed laying flat on his back and choking, just the things that we would expect. And then after having been a part of this training, they sat him upright. They didn't have the resources for a specialized chair, but they put it together. They had him in a chair. They used towels. They used whatever they had laying around to be able to provide him the support to be able to sit him upright in a chair. And during that feeding, he never choked. First time out of the gates, didn't choke. They saw him smile for the first time. It really makes me want to cry. They saw him smile and they didn't know he could do that. But think about it. If all you've seen your whole life is the ceiling and this huge spoon coming at you, and then suddenly you're upright and you're looking around and you're seeing other kids and you're seeing faces and you're seeing what's coming at you in a reasonable bite, as opposed to like this enormous bite size on a huge spoon. And that was like this aha moment. Like there is a person in there. And the next time we went back, he was sitting and eating with all the other kids. He had his adaptation. I don't think he was self-feeding at that point, but what a change. <laughs> what a change. So. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. And again, nutrition feeding, this is just mm -hmm. one piece of the puzzle, but I will tell you in some ways, it's a great place to start. And that's what we have gotten a lot of feedback on is it's fairly benign when you're going in and you're talking to people about changing other parts of the way you're caring for a child that can be pretty threatening, but nutrition and feeding is pretty non-threatening. And it takes very little time for people to identify that there's room for improvement. And it takes very little time for us to show them the impact. So circling back to talking about evidence-based programming, from the very beginning, we've had within our programming, the importance of collecting baseline data, if you will. So before there's any kind of intervention, before there's any training, we try to, first by teaching people how to measure kids, we try to understand, you know, where are the kids at on their growth? And if we can access it, like what's the nutritional status of these kids? What are anemia rates for these kids? And looking at feeding practices, how are these kids being fed? What are they being fed? Is it appropriate for their age level? Is it being done safely? And then through our training and our tools, we teach them how to evolve that in a way that's really developmentally appropriate and safe and nurturing for these kids. And then afterwards, we continue to measure impact. And it takes very little time to turn some of these things around. We see wasting radically improve within a couple of months. Anemia drop 50%, 80%. It's little things that make a huge difference. And I think because we can demonstrate it, we're able to get buy-in pretty quickly and people take ownership and want to continue these programs. 
now that Spoon has been around for over a decade, what does the situation look like today? Are you still the only one in the field addressing this issue? What's the need looking like today compared to when you started? I think it's a lot more hopeful. When we started, we sort of started at the same time that there was this really big push to deinstitutionalize kids prevent kids from going to institutions and make sure that kids who are in institutions get out of them and go home. And boy, are we big proponents of that. Like you don't have to convince us of that. The challenge was that inadvertently funds were being completely funneled away from helping kids who were living in institutional settings become healthier and therefore giving them a chance to go back home or be brought into some kind of alternative family care because there was a fear of making institutions that much more attractive. And we never saw that with improvements in these kids' health. We never saw a greater draw to these institutions. What we were aiming for and we're looking for is these kids to be healthy enough again to go home to families. But that was something we were sort of pushing a boulder uphill it was easy to be misunderstood as an organization that might be just trying to improve institutional care and make orphanages a a shinier place. So we were fighting against that quite a bit. Two things happened that changed. One is we started to be better understood as an organization that was helping to prevent institutionalization as well by servicing kids with disabilities living within community settings and helping to educate and empower communities and families to take care of these kids at home by addressing their feeding and nutrition. And also that improving the health and the care of these kids who are living in institutional settings is so essential in order for them to be deinstitutionalized in a healthy and sustainable way. I think simultaneous to that organizations that were really leading this deinstitutionalization effort started to understand that we have to look at this systemically, which they were doing, and look at things like poverty, which contribute to institutionalization. Those are things that need to be looked at, absolutely, but it's going to take time. And in the interim, we have how many tens of millions kids around the world living in institutions, we can't just forget about them. And so organizations that would keep us from sort of getting a seat at the table are now inviting us to the table to help address these issues. And that makes me feel very hopeful. We also see a lot more resource right now going into nutrition for children and child protection overall, as these issues I think have just become more prioritized. And in policy right now, there's just a lot more work going on to make sure that the most vulnerable populations of kids are included in the global health mandate and priorities and efforts. Over these years, as the scene has changed and as uh, the institutions who are addressing this issue have evolved as well, have you seen Spoon shift from how it started to where it is today? And how has Spoon evolved? Yes. And that's a really fair question because I don't want to point all externally. I think that we understood that we had more to do really growing and expanding our reach beyond just kids who were living in institutional settings. We didn't want to walk away from them, but we wanted to make sure we were also reaching these kids before they ever made it to the institutions. And as a result, we've really broadened our focus to include 
more than before. Children with disabilities who, because of feeding difficulties and malnutrition are at higher risk of being relinquished by their families into institutional care and making sure that we're serving those kids in their communities and in their families. So that has become an important piece of our work. I will say too, early on, in the very, very beginning, we were a lot more focused on the nutrition component that addresses strictly what is going into kiddos' bodies, their diet and their supplements. And we were less focused on feeding. And it took us a couple years to broaden that scope. We had very early on had a victory with our partners in Kazakhstan, leveraging the data we were able to collect on the prevalence of nutrient deficiencies of kids living in institutional care to change national policy there and implement a new diet and new nutrition standards for the orphanage system within Kazakhstan. We didn't get to celebrate very long before we realized that we were overlooking that really critical piece of not just what is being fed to these kids, but how. And so I'd say when we look at our evolution as an organization, it's going from just looking at nutrition in the very traditional sense to also addressing feeding practices and from just looking at kids living in institutional care to also addressing kids before they get to institutional care, kids with disabilities who are at high risk for malnutrition and feeding difficulties, and even kids re-entering families and making sure that those families are equipped to meet their nutrition and feeding needs. And I think the third way in which we have evolved is geographically that we've moved beyond one country and one region to working in most major regions of the world and have learned as we go about how to be good partners and how to do meaningful work that is scalable. And particularly now that can be effective in a more virtual world where we, for a lot of reasons, are prohibited from traveling to be there in person to serve these kids. Although I will say that if you talk to anyone on our team who has implemented our programs and partnered with organizations around the world, that when you walk into any institution or any home with a child with a disability and you look at the nutrition and feeding issues, these kids have so much more in common with one another than they do with the communities in which they live. And if you put all their data together, this is to us, which is really astounding. Before we do anything, before we do anything to step in and work with our partners to intervene, you put all their baseline data together. You look at the growth of all these kids and you look at the nutritional status and the development of all these kids. If they all lived in the same country, it would be declared a global emergency, the likes we have never seen. But they're spread out and they're living in their own little pods all around the world. And because of that, they're under the radar. Wow. Thank you for sharing your story today. Is there anything that you would like to talk about that maybe we haven't covered in our conversation? No, I think you did a really good job covering all the bases. The only thing I comment on is when something touches you and you have an opportunity to make a difference and you find that nobody's addressing that issue, then It's really a privilege more than anything to be able to be in a position to work with all these incredible people to help solve for it. And it's not about possessing some unique intelligence or superpowers or any of it. It's just about being really passionate. And that other thing they say in entrepreneurship, persistence 
you just can't give up. And there have been times that I've overly persisted and probably cost us some opportunities <laughs> because I've driven people nuts. But for the most part, it's about knowing what you do not know and finding the people who know that and building the right team. And I feel like if there's one thing I've done for Spoon, it's that. It is just constantly recognizing what is it that we need to be doing and who are we missing? I always sort of compare this to having a kid because my parenthood began alongside the birth of Spoon. It all happened to me at the same time. And when people compliment me on my child and what he can do, I feel pride, but I don't feel a ton of ownership because he is now his own person. And there are so many people who have like helped shape who he is and what he can do. And that's how I feel about Spoon. It's become its own thing and I get to just witness it. And I hope I get to help shape and nurture it. And sometimes it needs more for me than it used to, or sometimes it just doesn't need me at all, (laughs) but it's not mine. It's not this thing I created. It's, It's just something I had the privilege of helping bring into the world. If I can get other people to catch on a little bit to feel the value in what we're doing and be inspired by it enough so that they want to then help shape what's next, then I've done my job. (laughs) What a great way to bring this podcast to a close. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today. It has been wonderful to chat with you and to get to know you better. I hope that we can have another conversation in the future, but I really appreciate your time today. I would love to talk anytime. And thank you so much for caring so much about Boone and these kids and giving me a chance to gloat on them a bit. That's our episode for today. Please join us again next time. In the meantime, please be sure to check out Spoon at spoonfoundation.org. If you have any personal comments for me, find me on my website, nkzed.com. Until next time, be well, be nourished, and keep thriving.